Hey, everybody. This is Jerry Ordway, probably best known for Power Shazam, Superman, things like that. You're listening to Spoiler Country. It's time to enter the spoilerverse via our secret portal at the exclusive Arctic Club in beautiful downtown Seattle with our hosts, John and Kenrick and Jeff. Welcome to Spoiler Country. Hey, if you're listening to our show for the first time and you're on one of the social medias that we're on, like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, any of those kinds of things, you should always check us out on spoilerverse.com. But if you want to keep up with our latest episodes, you should bring out your smartphone, get into your favorite podcaster, find Spoiler Country, and hit subscribe. Then you'll get all our new stuff. And if you want to reach out to us, you can do that in two ways. You can call us and leave us a voicemail at 707-656-2080. Again, 707-656-2080. Or you can shoot us an email at spoilercountry at gmail.com. Join the cult of the Spoilerverse, and welcome back to Spoiler Country. I'm Kenneth Regan. That is Mr. Horsley. And today on the show, well, it's Jerry Ordway, isn't it? It is. It's uh, the man, the myth, the legend, the guy who's been around in a lot of stuff in his career. He and is the inker extraordinaire. He is. He's done a lot more than that, though. I mean, he's not oh, just yeah. an inker. He's not just a tracer. He's not. He's not. He He's a writer. He's a penciler. He's an inker. Um, the guy can do it all. And yeah, and and as you're soon gonna find out, he's a chatterbox. He he can talk. I mean, I wasn't on this one, but I do remember you calling me afterwards, mm-hmm. right after it was done, to tell me all about it. <laughs> yeah, it was a lot. Of, it was a lot of fun. Jerry was a cool guy. He really is, actually. Uh, he's very, um, it's like what you see and what you hear is what you get. That is Jerry. Yeah. You know what I mean? And there's no punches pulled, and he's super honest, and he's kind of a breath of fresh air in a lot of ways in that respect because he yeah, just, he's you know he just likes to to go over things and he's very open about everything you can ask that guy anything you want yeah you know had a little technical difficulties <laughs> we could say that yeah so um it starts I, kind of abrupt <laughs> it does start kind of abrupt because i'm an idiot and to jerry i apologize for this because i think we kind of miss out on to me, which is like one of the best stories he gave us is how he got his job at DC. Yeah, which we'll 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 try and get him back on to retell that story. Yeah, I mean, and and if you've listened to us in the past, you've heard the story. Yeah, we've talked about it because I've repeated it because I I loved that story so much. But so I looked down at my mixer that that well my recorder, and I didn't realize that my memory card was full. Yep, and I have since. Because of that episode, this is <laughs> this happened twice to me now. Yeah, first time was with the original John Flash, John Wesley Ship. Yeah, which is like I can't believe I did that, and then I did it again with Jerry Ordway. So basically, and then on top of that, so people know, we try to use Skype as much as possible because it has a recording feature, so that yeah. gives us a backup. And I had neglected to hit record. <laughs> on on skype as the backup so it was like a double and it's all my fault because i don't well, it, nobody else was on <laughs> well, yeah and, and you're, you're so well you're so used to on those calls i always record on skype i always yeah. start the backup and i wasn't on this one because i was doing other stuff so 
You can you can sort of blame me, but it's still your fault. No, I can't blame you. <laughs> I mean, I'd like to, but I can't because that was yeah. just all me being stupid. And so it does start abruptly. And I apologize to Jerry for that. Um, but it's a really good conversation. You guys are going to get a lot of cool stuff out of it. Oh, and yeah. really, you're going to listen to one of the legit legends of the industry. Really? He's he's literally one of the only people that I really hope to someday get a, a, a drawing for on my wall. One of the few. No, there you go. Yeah. There you go. He wanted somebody else, but I, I, I swiped it from him. Yeah, you did. And you've, and you've, let's just listen to the interview. <laughs> Here's Jerry Ordway in his own words. You know, one page of typed outline and break it down in their own way to 22 pages. Yeah. In other words, they're pacing it out. They're adding angles. They're doing, they're still leaving a lot of room for the balloons and stuff. That was an art that it was hard to teach, you know? So if you were good at that part of it, hey, let's have these guys do, between the two of those, the Buscema brothers, they must have done like 10 books. Wow. You know what I mean? 10 books a month and having um, other people do uh, the, the, the finishes. So, but that's what I'm saying. Like, if you were Tom Palmer, Tom Palmer is respected. Tom's a terrific guy. I'm so lucky to have gotten to meet him in the last maybe 10 years at shows and stuff. But he was like my hero, you know, because uh, I knew what he was doing. Because yeah. when, he, when he inked or finished John Buscema or anybody, it looked good. You know what I mean? So, but the problem is, you know, from a point of pride, if that was me, I know that that's not just my work. You know, so that's what I meant about, you know, you could put as much into a layout. Somebody else does the layout. They still did the layout. So you're still, it's still not your work. So that was, uh, that's probably part of, you know, that childhood, I guess, the being, having it drilled into me. Did you, did you trace it? Did you draw it freehand? It it had something to do with, you know, ownership of the, the, the work. And if somebody else had a part of it, it wasn't totally yours, (laughs) you know? Yeah. When you... uh, (laughs) When, when, when you got to to work on Crisis, that ends up being a series of books or, a, you know, a series that resonated for a really long time. And it still resonates. Yeah. I, I mean, it's it's still making waves throughout the work. And I think it's, it's done more than almost any other type of, for lack of a better term, crossover event that I can think of. Yeah. You know, and you got to and you're inking George Perez and you're working with Marv Wolfman. You know, what was that like? I mean, did you guys kind of know what you're doing? Because when we talked to Marv, he said that was, took him a long time to plot that out. Yeah. Well, here's the deal. I mean, and, and again, this is not, again, this is not against Marv. Yeah. But I read the book as a reader, not as a contributor, right? I think I joined in with issue five. So I remember reading the first couple and thinking, eh. I don't know. It's it wasn't grabbing me, right? <laughs> and then um, I found out later. See, initially, Marvin George, when they worked on the Teen Titans, they would talk over the phone, and George would really do what John Buscema and Jack Kirby and these people did. He would basically take that conversation, which might have amounted to a couple of juicy paragraphs, and he would pace it out over a twenty-two page book. So he really is a co-storyteller. I mean, he's. You yeah. know what I'm saying? I'm not trying to take away from Marv. That's right. the, that's how Marvel style worked, really, was minimal in most of the writers, minimal plot, 
and then the artist would expand it and basically paste it over 22 pages, adding whatever action, what have you. Right. <clears throat> but with George, I found out later, when they started Crisis, George was more very concerned about the amount of heroes, and he wanted to make sure he got everybody's costume right, and he understood it. Because it's it really, it's hundreds of, of DC heroes. Yeah. And to draw any of these characters doing stuff, you have to know how they how their powers work. You know, people don't think about that, but you can't, you know, you have to know what does Peacemaker have a power? Does he have a vehicle? Does he, yeah, you know, I mean, it, yeah. it's all stuff and that's all stuff that's staged by him. Yeah. You it's could see be, a silhouette of Wolverine without the hair, without right. the big things and just the way he's standing and everything going on, you know who that is. Yeah. Well, you also know, cause he's a character that's widely known you know what his powers are. You know yeah. what he's going to do. So you know how to make him act. Right. That's what a what a penciler, layout artist, whatever. That's what you're doing. Is you're ta- you're like an actor. You're like putting that character into be- believable situations with body motion, with body language, whatever the interactions with the other characters. Even though there's not dialogue, that's all part of the storytelling. So George, what I'd read was he was focused on initially. He was focused on trying to make sure he got these characters right. Because it was a huge curve to learn all these, you know, the entire DC universe. So the first couple issues, Marv had written up traditional plot. And then I think with issues three or four, I forget if it was, maybe it was four, but George took over and they wound up doing a lot of stuff the way they had done the Titans. So he basically started, he had more input um, into the story, you know. So I think it really took off at that point because it suddenly became more visual, you know? And again, that's not a knock on, on Marv. It's just, uh, the comic with that many characters still needs to have a visual hook. And it's not just about putting, you know, 80 guys in a panel or whatever. So George was able to kind of like, you know, it was like a cinematographer or something. He was able to really create a mood for it. And I think his, his work, you know, grew over those first couple issues too. And it became, as a reader, it became more compelling to me, I thought, because I felt like there was more emotion and stuff happening. But yeah, so I was, I, I was, I'd gone off to do Fantastic Four because DC wouldn't, <laughs> it really came down to, I was working with Roy and yeah. I, I became, Roy was in California. Roy took over as editor and writer of all of his books. And I felt like I'm working for DC in New York, but I'm kind of forgotten by DC in New York because I'm owned by Roy in a sense. Right. And I remember asking for a raise. I wanted a page rate increase and I was frustrated for whatever reason. They would only give me so much and they wouldn't bump me up. And I was kind of frustrated in the situation. So I just decided, you know what? I've been getting offers from Marvel for, you know, years to do stuff. So I'm just going to make the jump. Yeah. I went to Marvel. I talked to, to, uh, I forget. I, I started talking with burn. I think I I started a pen pal thing with burn somewhere in that, you know, when he started inking the fantastic four and he and I wrote back and forth a couple of times. And he then offered me, I think I was going to do squadron Supreme. I was going to do finishes. He was going to do layouts. Grinwald was writing it. And they were going to do the Justice League the right way or something like that. <laughs> and I actually inked a promo teaser page for it. And it's a silhouette shot of all the characters meant to look like, oh, look, there's Hawkman. There's, yeah. You know what I mean? It looked like the, and it ran in, in as a house ad in, in the Marvel book somewhere around in 
I'd say probably 1983 or 84. <laughs> so while I'm preparing this, all this happens really fast. Yeah. I get suddenly get, uh, Earn called me up. He goes, Hey, I'm not doing squad, uh, squadron Supreme's done. I'm not, it's not happening or I'm not doing it. Do you want to ink the fantastic four? And I'm like, Whoa, wow. That's kind of cool. How do I say no? Right. So I said, sure. He goes, well, I'm going to send you a page. So he sent me a splash page of Dr. Doom, which oh, I nice. inked and I sent it back. It didn't have balloons on it or anything. It was just a splash page. And that was my audition. I didn't realize it at the time because they paid me for it anyways, but that was kind of my audition. And that page didn't show up until I think the fourth issue of my run, you know, with burn on that. Yeah. So it was, it was like a page he just invented and then he made it, you know, page one of the issue where the Dr. Doom steals the, or sends the Baxter building into space or something. So, so, but anyway, so I take, I said, okay, I'm do I'll do fantastic four thinking that squadron Supreme was done. Like, like maybe it fell apart. Right? Yeah. So I get a call from Mike Carlin. He's like, Hey, it's great to have you on. Here's here's your new rights. And we're going to give you, you know, you said DC would, wouldn't give you the $99 a page for pencils. Well, we're going to give you a hundred just to, just to make a point. <laughs> so, and I didn't even do any penciling at Marvel. I was supposed to, and it just didn't happen, but it was just funny. So I'm working on that. And then Grunwald, I bump into him, I think at a show, a convention or something. And he said, yeah, I was really disappointed that you, you left the squadron Supreme. And I said, I thought it wasn't happening. He said, no, no, it just burn left. <laughs> he said, I was going to ask you to pencil it. So I was like, Oh, well, sorry. <laughs> well, you know. So then, the minute I left DC, yeah. The minute I left DC, I start getting calls from DC, and it's like, "Hey, we're giving you a rate, a rate increase. We're giving you this, this, and this." And I'm like, "Oh, well, that's a little late." So yeah. they started trying to get me back from that time, and uh, you know, I did like a bunch of covers during that time while I was inking Burn. I did a bunch of DC covers. I must have done like two or three of them, maybe two, at least two a month, which you know was nice penciling and inking covers and stuff. And then while I was on the Fantastic Four stuff, I, I agreed to do six issues. I never wanted it open-ended. I just said, the burn, I'm just looking for a, a refresher. You know, I don't really want to go back into inking full-time. Yeah. So I was doing six. And then Pat Pastina, DC, was the production coordinator. She said, well, Dick Giordano can't ink Crisis. And, you know, George doesn't like... Mike DiCarlo's work or whatever it was something again, yeah. like an issue with that. She said, George wants you. And I said, I can't do it until issue six because I'll be done with the burn stuff. And she said, okay, that's fine. In the meantime, we want you to do a DC presents annual with Julie Schwartz. You're going to pencil a Superman and Superwoman. And I'm like, okay, when does that do? Well, it'll be this. So anyways, I had all this scheduled and then finishing up the burn thing. And I, DC then, I got a panic call. You need to start with issue five. And I was like, wait, I can't. No, George is going to quit. You have to do issue five. It's got to start with issue. And then again, I don't know how much of this came from George, but this is how DC put it to me, right? So he just made it like this huge thing. Like if I didn't start immediately, George was going to quit. And again, I don't know if that, you know, from their point of view, maybe that was them just pushing me. I don't know. But I wound right. up having to start, but I still had one issue of Burns thing to do. And I was supposed to pencil like a 40 page or 30 page annual story for Julie Schwartz. And I said, I can't do that. The Julie Schwartz thing. And she said, well, I, Julie is 
hard to say no to. <laughs> and I said, but you just told me you want me to do this other thing. I yeah. can't do both. Yeah. So I had to agree. Well, and the thing is they wouldn't, Julie wouldn't let me out of it totally. So he said that he, I still had to ink it and he would get Ed Barreto to pencil it, but I still had to ink it. And I think it was, maybe it was 39. I forget if the annuals were 39 pages or something, but it yeah. was a long thing. Yeah. So the first month of the crisis, that one month, I had this huge bottleneck. I had, I wound up doing eight issues over burn. I had the eighth issue of Fantastic Four, my last one. I had the DC Presents annual and Crisis Number Five all hitting in the same month. They were all due. Like, were you, were you doing the covers as well? No, no. Well, burn, I was inking covers on the Fantastic Four, but yeah. I wasn't doing any. George was doing the pencils and inks on all of his Crisis stuff. Gotcha. But so I just had to figure out a way to do all of that in the space of a month. So I had had a studio in Milwaukee and at the height of our studio, we had Pat Broderick and Mike Macklin. And then we brought Al Bay in who was starting to get, you know, some jobs here and there. And uh, Al wasn't really busy. He was still, you know, he would do like filling in blacks and things to help out. And I'd pay him in cash or whatever, to, or he'd pay off his rent. So at, a, at the point when this all came down, it was only Hal and me in the studio. And I looked at him and I said, hey, if you're willing to commit to one month of seven days a week, maybe we can get this done. I said, I'll order food and get pizza, whatever. But we're going to be here for long days every day. And he said, okay. And that's how we did it. We just, I, I had him do backgrounds where he could. Yeah. Like on the DC Presents annual, especially was helpful. So he did backgrounds on that. And then I did the main figures and then he'd fill in the blacks and he erased the pages, which, you know, was another chore anyways. But, and I pretty much, I think I, I there were only a couple pages. I let him try the burn stuff, but I knew burn would be not want to get shortchanged or, you know, make it <laughs> mad or whatever. Right, so I, right. I made sure I went over those so that they looked consistent and, and the Perez stuff, you know, with its millions of characters. Oh, man. It was just crazy, that but is, you know, sounds, sounds like a somehow you, I'm not, I was always steady, slow and steady, but I, I don't, I, I was able to do I mean, between me and Al, we must've done five pages. Some days we'd do five pages and that's a lot, yeah. <laughs> you know? So it was basically able to, cause crisis was people look at, you don't, I don't know if you look at the original books, those were all long stories. They yeah. weren't, 22 pages they were like 24 to 26 27 even so wow. there was a lot of page count in there you know, yeah. it was a lot and there were no easy pages that was the other thing there was no you know here's a full silhouette page of something it's always you know nine ten panels with very tiny detail and backgrounds and you know it, it was a lot so somehow that happened, but you know, when, uh -huh. when you do something like that, that's what I, I've told people is when, you know, like, how did you do the Batman movie book? And it's like, well, yeah. that was a super hard deadline with a lot, you know, it was just a hard project. And the only thing that got me through it was I survived crisis. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and it's seriously, it's like you, you know, you like the, I, I survived uh, hurricane Katrina. Yeah. <laughs> so therefore, you know, throw it at me, man. I can yeah, do it. <laughs> I can do it. I know. I know what I can take, and I can take that. I, I had that Batman. Yeah. I had a, I, somehow I got like two or three different times. Yeah, there was two different versions. There was a <clears throat> a newsstand version, which was on the like more like newsprinty paper, and had a 
regular newsprint cover or like a, you know, slick paper cover. And then yeah. the, other, the deluxe one was the cardboard stock. Yeah, that's the one I had, had was a cardboard bound. stock. I got it yeah. at the movie theater. Yeah, that was a cool thing too. Yeah, they don't do that anymore. They should do that more. That was a huge, huge undertaking. I mean, we again, this stuff that people don't think about or remember much, but it was, everybody at DC knew that this was going to be, if the movie was successful, this would be a good advertisement for the comic market. Yeah. And so they started working with the movie theaters and with like some select Walgreens and drugstore, you know, grocery store chains also. Yeah. And they, we created like a, a special box that could sit up on a counter and they had to do that because they had to provide that. And then they had to pay something like five bucks per location to get that onto a counter. So it's like, you know, it's not like newsstand distribution where it's, oh, there's a comic rack. You had to create your, you know, your receptacle and then you had to pay each location a, a fee to put that on the counter. And with the movie theaters, that was the same thing. So that was all planned out in it well in advance. And then I think the Wednesday before the movie opened, movie would open on Friday, but it was like during that week, Warner Brothers decreed that the theaters couldn't sell the comic in the first week of the of the movie because <laughs> they thought the comic might embarrass them. <laughs> that was what I heard. <laughs> and I always thought, like, wait, this thing is based on the comic, and you're going to say we can't sell the comic because the comic might somehow impact the movie? <laughs> like, what is wrong? So it still sold. <laughs> it, it was just weird because I think it was Warner Brothers asserting their dominance, you know. But it was it still sold a lot of copies. But I think the what what they did was it it couldn't be sold the weekend. So I think that they somehow figured out that they could put it in the theater on Monday. Yeah. But so missed the opening weekend, but it was sitting there for all the people, and it was a big movie. So I, I, I think it. a lot of people either went to see it. The, during the weekday rather yeah. than the weekend because it was, you know, I saw that out. four or five times. What was what came out at the same time? Was it out of Africa? There was a ton of stuff that that in that. Well, I'm June, trying to think if there's a movie that came the out. Indiana Jones, the Indiana Jones and the Lost Crusade. You had a Star Trek movie. You had a James Bond. I think it was The Living Daylights or whatever the, the Timothy Dalton. Yeah, there was there was a bunch of genre films that came out all in that same short stretch. I saw Batman so many times that summer. <laughs> like I can't even. I was so I was born '74, so I was 15. And it just, you know, perfect age. Right? Oh yeah. I loved Batman. I read the comic books. You know, I was a big, I was a big comic book guy. I mean, that's yeah. what I did in, in junior high. And my mom took me, to, this is probably like the fourth or fifth time that I saw it. Maybe even, maybe even seventh or eighth, <laughs> but she went to see, see another movie and her, my dad and I went and saw Batman. And like at some point, I don't remember what, like wasn't opening night. Cause I saw opening night with some friends, but mm-hmm. we went <laughs> She went with her friend to another movie and said, do you want to go? And I'm like, sure, I'll go see Batman while you guys are seeing that. <laughs> well, her movie finishes early. And so Uh-oh. my mom, being my mom, decides, well, I'm not waiting for you. She walks into the movie, down to the front, and starts screaming my name <laughs> to come take me out of the Batman movie. And I was like, are you kidding me? I was so embarrassed. <laughs> at least, Yeah, the embarrassment's bad, but at least you get to see it before that. So it wasn't like... Get to see yeah, it wasn't. Yet. It wasn't like the first time seeing it, which would have been just oh my god. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't believe it. 
So. That's a mom thing. That really is funny, though. Oh yeah, that's totally. <laughs> did a mom you? Thing. When did you get the comic? Though, did, did you get the comic on your own, or did you, you get? Know, it you know, what's weird book? is I got the comic on opening mm-hmm. night. Like okay. the theater must not have gotten the the the. Uh, wow, I, w- I wonder. I w- actually, that's a good point. I wonder if the theaters might have just because Warner Brothers saying they they're ran by eighteen and nineteen year olds. I mean, what type yeah, of nineteen? No, I'm saying old? like it's like when you you know w- supplies like with those posters that they're supposed to give out for the yeah. special. Thursday night showings, you know, some, some give them out, some just leave them out. Yeah. Know? Yeah. My very, so good, they probably, my very good friend, Mark Shoemaker, shout out to Mark. We've known each other since he was four and I was six. His older brother, David always just did things with us. He was a really good older brother. And so he was in his mid twenties when, mm-hmm. when Batman came out and he took us to the opening night. Him and his girlfriend, they actually went and had silkscreen Batman shirts made for us. So we had cool. Batman shirts. And I remember getting the comic and a poster. So I don't know. I, I mean, yeah. And that was definitely opening night because we had to wait in line forever. Well, that's cool. So it's good to know that they broke that moratorium. And yeah. It's funny, funny too, because they, they sold, I believe they, they had a, the black Batman shirt with the, with the you know yellow emblem. Yeah. That was also um, sold in the theaters. Maybe that's what, a, maybe that's what he did. Maybe he just bought us those. Yeah, it was a, it was just a black shirt with the yellow. Yeah, the yellow. Yep. It wasn't the movie. It wasn't the movie uh, logo. It was just the bat the regular Batman logo because yeah. I think the movie logo was not trademarked or something. There was some weird because they came up with their own. Oh, it's really? got like an extra. Yeah, it's got an extra scallop on the on the bat shape. <clears throat> yeah, it was something that the like whoever Hollywood whoever did the poster, yeah, and the producers they 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 screwed Just it up. Oh, yeah, it was like oh this and they didn't look at whatever was existing. So it was some there was some kind of like weird <laughs> weird problem. Like it it wasn't somehow trademark protected because the actual DC the Batman logo is, and this one was like kind of kind of weird. I think somebody told me that they corrected it by the second movie. Well, they had a different one on the Batman sixty six stuff too. Yeah. Which is well, I think, I, always weird. And that one was, well, that was co-owned, I think, between DC or National Periodicals and Fox and ABC. Oh, interesting. That was why that thing was, was hidden away for so long. <laughs> it's cool looking. <laughs> but so uh, yeah, the, go ahead. I was going to say the, the, the movie, when I was doing that, I just, I remember agreeing to do it right around December I mean, I had gotten, but I was lucky enough to see the set because yeah. I had done, I'd gone to a show and, and the only time I was at the, it was called the UCAC. There's a, a, it was right in London, a big comic convention. And I was a guest in October, I guess, or I don't even guess it could have been like the end of September or something. And we got to the, I got to the, the, the hotel at like, for us, it would have been like three in the morning or something the time difference. But it was like 10 o'clock at night or something. It was some really drastic thing, but you couldn't go to bed right away, even though you're tired, because then you'd be out of sorts. So you, you tried to adjust right away. And right. I remember going to the bar and having all these people go, oh, you missed it. We got to do a tour of the Batman movie set. And I was like, ah, crap. <laughs> so, so then my wife, at the time she worked at DC as a she was publicity, she was able to, to get a hold of Jeanette Kahn, who was also in London. And Jeanette set up not a tour, but just us to visit informally on yeah. the, like after the show. 
And so it was kind of nice. We got to walk That's around. Cool. Couldn't we couldn't take pictures or anything, but the, each of the departments were showing off their stuff. They were like super proud of it. So we got yeah. to see the art department, the costume, the vehicles, the all this stuff. And it was oh wow, it was really cool. Yeah, I mean it was it was a different, you know, like when we saw the the costume, the costume people were like so proud of this, and they were explaining the costume, you know, because it looked so cool. Yeah. Uh, but she was saying, you know, the lady was saying, like, if you look at the, the cape, this cape is made of rubber. And to keep it from, like, just kind of jiggling, they basically lined the inside of the cape with wool fibers uh-huh. so that it gave it weight and some drape, like it would drape and it would hang. Yeah. And it also didn't reflect the camera light because it was wool. It was like a fuzzy, not even noticeable, like hairy or anything, but it was right. just a very short um, wool fiber. But it also gave the cape so he could turn. When he turned, the cape would swoop and and make shapes and stuff, which was really cool. But it was, you know, they were super proud of that. And then the guys with the car were uh, really proud of the car. And they were talking about how all the different, you know, production people were (laughs) testing the car out on this road that's right by Pinewood Studio that, you see in the movie, but you see in all the James Bond movies too, because it's like a long straight road. Yeah. Um, and they would try to get the car over a hundred miles an hour on this little, <laughs> basically a super straight two lane country road. <laughs> it's just amusing. <laughs> so they were they were happy that they were just, they were so thrilled that they had like this powerful engine in this thing. <laughs> you know. That's awesome. <laughs> but all that stuff was was, and they were still building like the outside. We were walking through the the, the city you know, the Monarch theater, that little town square and stuff. And there was some of the stuff was still being built because they didn't start filming. I think until I think they didn't start until maybe November or something, or maybe October, late October. But it was, so that was like an impetus to see that. And then, you know, my buddy, Jonathan Peterson was the editor. He worked on the Titans stuff too, but he was also assistant on car with, with Carlin on Superman for a while. And he had been handed the to edit the uh, movie adaptation stuff, so he immediately said, "Hey, let's do one. Let's make them good like they used to be, and you know, was uh, put the extra effort in to try to make characters look like the characters and all this stuff." And, yeah, um, that's cool. We had a, yeah, we got lucky enough to have Robert Wool on a couple oh, cool. a couple weeks ago, and we he really liked his time on Batman. He said it was a lot of fun. He was bummed that yeah. he he didn't get to be on the second one. He goes, yeah. I, he goes, I thought my character was perfect to be in the second movie. He goes, I didn't understand why they didn't bring me back. Yeah. Well, he and Billy, I mean, Billy D. Williams probably got screwed worse. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. He, he kind of, it, it's a shame in a way you think about that because he's, I, Billy D's great and it would have been great to have had Two-Face appear during the Tim Burton run in yeah. a way. You know what I mean? I, I can't watch the, show, the Schumacher ones. Yeah. They're hard to, I, I mean, just, they're. I can't swallow they're, them. They're beautifully, beautifully designed, but the the downside to me, and I noticed this seeing him in the theater, was he was it was also that whatever that you know short span in Hollywood where they thought, oh, you know what makes something edgy? Move the camera around really fast. Yeah, yeah. and that was during that time. I remember they they uh, seeing like some of these designs before going to see the movie and going, wow, this is really cool, Art Deco, these giant heads and stuff. Then in the the camera moves like jerking around them so fast that you, you it's like you guys spent like millions of dollars to build these sets and you can't like let the camera just take it in you know right. it so was, you could appreciate it 
Yeah, it was the for me. It's the I don't know. I because I read the comic books, and so I took Batman at a more serious level. I, I like I liked the '66 stuff when I was a kid, but once I started reading the books, I couldn't watch the '66 because it was so different. Oh yeah, you know, and it well, was it was like, jokey. It yeah, was, it was it was yeah yeah. It was kind of like uh, ultimately when you're a kid. It's it's perfect because when I saw it, when the Batman sixty six I was the right age for it I was ten right. years old or nine years old or something, <clears throat> but you reject it then when you go wait this is what Batman is yeah yeah and that's exactly what it, so when I saw Burton I was actually scared to go see it at, you know I was worried that it was going to be more like the TV show and I'm like I don't want the Batman movie from the nineteen sixties I don't, yeah, yeah. I want what I'm seeing and then you watch it you're like wow this is this is amazing. <laughs> it hit on every level, you know, for well, do you, me. Do you remember, I mean, since you were, you said you were like 15 or something. Yeah. Do you remember when the trailer, when that, like it was even, it wasn't even a polished trailer. It was just that quick series of cuts. Yep. It debuted around, I think with the Christmas, whatever Christmas movie Warner brothers had out that year. Could have been, could it have been Scrooge? Scrooge yeah, or something? Been... Maybe not the right year. Is it Scrooge or it wasn't big, was it? I don't know, it was, but whatever the big movie was that I remember sitting in a theater with, again, Jonathan, maybe Carlin, we were all sitting watching a movie in Manhattan, I think it was, and the you used to hear the, the, was the beginning of that where you're starting to hear like the the music and it's very 1930s old movie kind of yeah you know because I was again I did I only knew Danny Elfman from Oingo Boingo and Oingo Me Boingo too. Was, I was like so it was, oh, it was like wait what is he gonna do is this gonna be like <laughs> funky but then. You know, he brought that old, you know, that that great old sound to it, and the, the the music starts playing, and then you just see those quick cuts, and then you see Batman quick cuts, and then you see, you know, you over the voiceover with the Joker with the newspaper, winged freak terrorizes Gotham, and then you see the newspaper come down. Wait till they get a load of me! It's like, oh my God, the the hair on my neck stood up. My, you know, it's just like so. This is awesome! I can't believe it's so good. Yeah. <laughs> and. And that I think really drove things so much because seeing it was like the first time to see Nicholson, but it was just the way it was the perfect reveal. You know, like I said, Wing Freak terrorizes. Wait till they get a load of me, and it was it was just so beautifully done. And again, if they had had if they'd had more time, it would have been a much more polished trailer. Yeah. But it wouldn't have been any better. It couldn't have it couldn't have been better. That was just like for a fan seeing that was like. Holy crap! He looks scary. That's yeah, how he's supposed to look. Perfect. It was perfect. <laughs> and then, well, you when you heard Michael Keaton's going to be Batman, the first thing I thought of was Mr. Mom, and I'm like, yeah, the Mr. Yeah. Mom guy? No, no. And then you see well, he, him, and he did Clean and Sober before that. Yeah. So for Batman is in between is Clean and Sober, and he also did Beetlejuice in between there yep, too. Yep. Well, see, I was too young for Clean and Sober. Yeah. So my yeah. whole thing for Michael Keaton was Mr. Mom gung-ho right. and Beetlejuice. Right. That's what I knew. And I was just like, what? No, no. But then you watch him, you're like, and I don't know if they've been a better Bruce Wayne yet. Yeah. You well, know? he was, he was, he brought a, he brought a brooding thing, but he also brought a little bit of a, I think because he was playing against Nicholson, I think that became almost more of a, you know what I mean? I think that probably changed his tone because yeah. the scenes between him and Nicholson where he's Bruce Wayne, those are some of the best scenes in the movie. Yep. I think. Yep. You know, because it's it's really like okay, you can get crazy, I can get crazy too. You know, what I mean, it was the just scene a, on kind the of steps. a good. 
yeah, yeah. The scene when he goes to Vicky Vale's apartment. Yeah. Yeah, those are all, and, and again, those are great Bruce Wayne scenes. Those yeah. are, but, but you know, it's funny here again when you think about the the way that whole movie kind of came about. DC <clears throat> had this the script. Everybody, I guess, Denny O'Neill really liked the Sam Ham script. They'd all been able to. They didn't get much say, but Jeanette was really big on we want to get this right. Yeah. And they, she did what she could as far as you know input. But again, DC didn't get much say in it. But she she was she was very invested in it, and she spent a lot of time with you know the producers and stuff before anything even happened. So I respected that, and that was really kind of my early, I guess, getting to know her and understanding what she actually did because <clears throat> it was easy enough to caricature her in a way because she was uh, you know uh, first female publisher, all this other stuff. You know, I mean, it, it was. She was really, she was a she was a great creative advocate for someone in that job. She was just people can't understand how big it was. All the Dick Giordano was certainly a big part of it. Yeah. Paul Levitt, they couldn't have done any of this stuff without her letting them. In other words, she was the main boss. She's the one who had to go to corporate and you know get more money for a prestige format or better page rates or right, better right. deals, equity deals and things. All that stuff kind of came from, you know, I think her and, uh, but on the Batman thing. So she, she also used to do a thing. This is another thing about moving, moving East, which was good. was <laughs> when I first moved, I found out though DC would do movies. They would do like a movie night or something and they'd have like a movie preview or something. And then the whole staff would go. And, and of course I could go if I wanted to come in from Connecticut. So one of the things was Jeanette was hosting this movie and it's going to be this, this is the director that we think Warner brothers is going to choose for Batman. And it's like, well, what's the movie? It's Pee Wee's big adventure. And I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> and so we, we're all like in this theater and Mike Carl and we're all like looking at each other, like, I don't know. And then at the end of the movie, we're like, ah, oh, he's perfect. <laughs> and, and Hey, Danny Elfman did the music for that. And that's a perfect, you know, it was like a perfect, I guess, audition for Batman music because Pee Wee, while it has the fun moments, it also has the, when he's searching for his bike, it's got this, you know, very film expressionistic kind of look to it and very uh, retro heavy 1930s, you know, Max Steiner type music and stuff. Right, right. So it was, but it was just funny. So the, the, But that's what, as a publisher, that's what she did. And that was really a really cool thing. I always, uh, that really always, I think that elevated me, her in my eyes, because I really didn't know what she was other than a figurehead. I didn't ever see her in action before I was able to, you know, go to the, the office functions and things like that. But a lot of that stuff happened you know, in the background, but we knew about it, you know, like we knew about when they started doing special deals to publish stuff and, you know, like the dark Knight and uh, Watchmen and things like that. So yeah. you're kind of like, even though it wasn't in the office all the time, I'd go up like pretty much every Friday and then we'd hang out with people and, you know, go out to dinner or drink movie, whatever. But you got a sense of what was happening. And it was kind of exciting in that way because, you know, when you're a freelancer, you generally work in, in an isolated <laughs> coronavirus type uh, <laughs> lockdown anyway. Right. It was nice to have that. Quarantined. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, hey. uh, and, and, and all that, you know, being close by also does give you, it does get it at the time. It did give me an edge, I think, because yeah. it gave me, you know, if I found out something was happening, 
I wouldn't have found out until after either someone had been hired for something or yeah. what have you. But so, yeah, even that that early era doing the crisis and stuff too was also my first. That's when they first promised me Superman. Yeah. Back when the, uh, Superman and Wonder Woman and Batman were all going to relaunch after Crisis, and then that didn't happen. But they did, you know, Dick Giordano said, uh, you could do Batman or you could do Superman, but I think you're more of a Superman guy. And it, uh, you know, he was probably right. I really was open for Batman, but, you know, I think he saw something in me that was probably, it probably was better for Superman, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's, a, that's actually a really good segue because I know Jeff actually has a few questions for you for Superman, if you don't mind. No, no problem. Hello, Mr. Ordway again. Hey, so I was thinking about when I was going to interview you, one of the most important issues that I've read of Superman, and this is coming from a reader who's also uh, Jewish, issue 54 of Superman, when you did the Time After Time story, when he goes back to uh, World War II era. And I was wondering, like, what inspired that? Because I think it was such an important issue, not only because of when Superman started, but also because it does visit the, the, the idea of Sumer being created by Jewish um, writers, and I think it's it was just such an important issue. Yeah. Well, he was, <clears throat> I mean, I actually was lucky enough to get to know um, Jerry and Joanne Siegel during the 80s. I kind of met, oh, wow. at, I met them at, I met Jerry at the San Diego Con. I was actually doing a signing at the same time. He was at the DC booth back in like 1985. And we, we again, back then you would start, like I just started Pen Pal letters back and forth and, and stuff. And so that I think that probably laid the seeds because I had been drawing the Earth 2 Superman in All-Star Squadron. And he, I showed him the stuff and he was very, you know, supportive and, and just couldn't have been nicer. But yeah, so I, I was always interested in the, especially that aspect of Superman kind of coming in that, in that time frame in the 30s and, and being, you know, the initial storylines are all pretty much like ripped from the headlines, social, social justice kind of things, and that I think that's part of that was that was the the the, the appeal that that I thought Superman had kind of gotten away from with all the you know, and when we did the relaunch, the whole idea was to try to make him relatable, and I, I had no interest in having him pushing a planet. You know what I mean? It, it <laughs> yeah. wasn't like anything wrong with that, but I just felt kind of like you know he he'd gotten so powerful and and as a character all this stuff has to come from emotion. I mean, I, I, that's always been the stuff I liked. So yeah, when we, we started talking about the time travel thing, I felt like, you know, the obvious choice, I would have been the guy to do the JSA crossover or something, you know? And I said like, <laughs> yeah, I actually would really, I'd rather do it like in a real setting and, and you know, the, any kind of, again, I like history. I like, I like reading about world. I like reading about the century, you know, the from the twenties, from the tens, twenties, all the way through, because it's it really is like a almost like a weirdly continuing story, you know. Yeah. War to war, but the the plight of the Jews and the and the camps and stuff has just always been a horrifying thing. I mean, I, I don't I don't think I, I I don't think I was exposed to it until I was maybe a teenager. I forget when, um, maybe I was older, but I remember seeing, seeing movies and then the DC, uh, DC, the networks, one of the networks did Herman Woke, War and Remembrance and The Winds of War. That was the first one. The Winds of War was a miniseries based on this big novel that he'd written. 
And the novel, the miniseries, actually had a huge section that followed this family from, you know, being members in, in, in high standing in German society right to the camps. And I just, I don't know, I was always very affected by that stuff. I mean, it's hard not to be, I don't know. But I mean, you know, I mean, some people don't like stuff that's depressing or whatever. But to me, I just found that like depressing and also like you got to know this stuff happened. <laughs> you know, you got to know that people yeah. have this ability. Yeah. Yeah, so and- a weird, it was a weird stretch to do it in a, in a comic, but it kind of felt right. You know, I don't yeah. know what else to say about that. I mean, what, what I thought was interesting, and I, and I think, like I said, I think what it reminded me of, and and I wonder if it's forgotten a little bit, just how deep of a heritage of um, Jewish writers and artists are in comic books. I mean, comic books, in many ways, do, I mean, it's a very rich history um, with that oh, yeah. and like, Jewish culture. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the, the thing as I was working on Superman, I, I didn't have the history of like, oh, wait, this is why you know, the house of L and the, there's a whole lot of stuff that's, that's kind of appropriated from Jewish religion and stuff too. And, and I just, I think it's, it's kind of clever how like Jerry Siegel was able, I mean, he basically used something and he made it seem science fictiony, but you know, you write what you know, I guess. And that, that's, what's kind of cool. It's like deconstructing it. And also the fact that the people who I think when they, again, Superman initially being pretty much like a social justice warrior, which is kind of cool. Yeah, I mean, I mean I, Batman wasn't Batman wasn't saving you know women from being beaten by their husbands and stuff. Batman was fighting criminals pretty much from the start. But Superman was going after crooked politicians, and I thought that was kind of cool. You know, uh, did you think that's was because of the, the the perception of the writers at the time period? Which, like, say, so you're talking late 1930s. Obviously, you're talking about people who were on the lower rung economically of society, and it does feel like that seems like a natural extension of what Superman became. Yeah, I, I also the one thing I don't understand, and again, I don't know if this doesn't fit or if it makes more sense, but I think because I mean, if you look at like the history of say Jack Kirby, he grew up like dirt poor. I mean, he, his his upbringing was was pretty bleak on the east side or whatever, New York. I don't get the same sensation. I think Jerry Siegel, you know, maybe that their family being in Cleveland and, and all that maybe had a not as bleak. I mean, there's nothing worse, I think, than reading about the tenements and things. And I mean, you get more of a sense of it from probably Will Eisner's semi, you know, autobiographical stuff. But so Kirby, basically, his he had religion in his work. In a in a way, I mean, he clearly had had his his God stuff was all kind of grounded in. You didn't necessarily know that he was, you know, a, a practicing or religious Jew or whatever, but you know, it made sense. And the same, I guess, same same thing comes through with Jerry Siegel. But it's funny that one had like Jerry Siegel maybe because of the ideal is idealizing, you know, the crusading reporters and things like that. Maybe, maybe that had more impact on him being a writer. You know, that's all I can think of as to why he, he took that, that kind of approach with Superman, whereas, you know, Kirby was writing, but he was mostly an artist, you know, in that era. And there really, I don't know, there really weren't a lot of, in the history of comics, if you look at the Superman stuff, the Superman stuff is very unique until they kind of sanded down the rough edges and and it became more of a standard superhero book. But the first year, the first maybe even two couple years, 
it really was very socially relevant, whereas I don't think there was anything else coming from the other companies that was necessarily like that, you know? So, I mean, that's, now, that's something nobody really, I don't think people have ever investigated uh, too thoroughly that, but uh, but maybe that's because he originally, or they had originally envisioned or hoped it would be a newspaper strip or something, but because the newspaper strips, the continuity strips got into heavier content, you know, Little Orphan Annie was, was all social stuff. And, and, you know, I mean, you had, there was a lot more in, in those, those daily, the continuity strips, I think that had, uh, had a political or at least some kind of social, you know, yeah. Social I mean, event. what I think is also kind of interesting about Superman, I mean, obviously Superman was in, was created by Jewish ca- uh, characters. It does feel like he's been, that when you, when, especially like when you watch him like Man of Steel, the movie, and some other stuff that he's been um, portrayed as actually being a Christian, which is kind of an interesting change of the character, I guess maybe because he came from Kansas, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, I think that that became, I mean, when, it's funny because when we were doing the, when I was doing the comic, my, I really hadn't, didn't have a lot of background with Superman. My biggest, I wasn't a, I wasn't a Superman reader. I really was like a Marvel maniac during my, my entire childhood through teens i don't think i i didn't read a whole lot of dcs i didn't i liked batman during the batman movie i mean the batman uh, tv show and i read some of those go go check batmans and stuff but i just i was never like a big superman fan but i can remember watching the 1950s tv show on in reruns on on like saturday mornings or whatever and i think the biggest impact really it was the christopher reeve the first movie you know, because the movie had that kind of, it actually had a kind of 1930s feel to it, you know? Yeah. And that was, that was, that's like my most compelling thing as to why I wound up doing Superman, you know? I mean, I'm just, it was never a, it's, it's not a logical thing. It's weird because you'd, I think you'd mentioned earlier about reading Marvels and then winding up working for DC. And I did actually make a conscious choice. And what it ha- came down to was all of my early, interactions at marvel were they the marvel people all had kind of like the jock you know the sports guys in high school that kind of competitive but that also you know they were always really nasty about dc and yeah and, uh, they make 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 jabs at, G, at dc why don't you come to a real company why don't you, you know <laughs> and i mean yeah. you know because i was not i mean i played sports and stuff but i wasn't on any teams I was definitely a nerd, you know, yeah. I always felt like, wow, these guys are kind of, these aren't the guys that I would have hung out with in high school, <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> and and the other part was, I also felt that because they were so dismissive, I remember thinking, and this is, I mean, Hey, you know, you're young, you think you're, you're going to make a change or whatever, but I felt like Marvel doesn't need me as much as DC needs me. You know yeah. what I mean? I mean, there was like a quest for me that if I'm going to choose a team, I want that team to be successful, but yeah. I'm not, the, not to the detriment of like, Oh, we're going to start name calling Marvel or whatever, but I wanted whatever I did, I wanted to be successful. And I felt like the people who were running DC from Jeanette to Dick Giordano, Paul Levitz, all the people that I worked with, I really liked, you know, and they were all nice people. So I think it, it just felt like, yeah, okay, I guess I'm not destined to, to draw Spider-Man or, or Daredevil or something, you know? I'd still like to do some of that, but I mean, yeah. I, at that point, I felt like DC needed me more than Marvel needed me, and I probably could make a 
more of a splash at DC as well. Yeah. You know, if I, if I'm successful at something, it's going to, it's going to work in both of our favors and, you know, and it did. And I was, I was, the good thing is, you know, being able to do, you know, you work hard, you make your deadlines, you try to put extra into everything. I mean, that does pay off. I think that paid off for me because people wanted to work with me, you know, you know what I mean? You don't, I don't, I, people always, I always had more job offers than, than I could do. And I never wanted to do more than I was comfortable with. So, um, it was a good, it was a good, a good, uh, it was a good choice. I still do wish I could have gotten to do some daredevil or some, I mean, I, I like the Marvel stuff tremendously. I don't know that I'm, I'm a, I don't think I'm a Spider-Man artist, you know, cause I don't think I yeah. can bend anatomy the way it needs to be with Spider-Man. But I, I do, I do love, uh, I'd love to do the fantastic four again, you know, as a, a grown up. <laughs> You know yeah. what I mean? <laughs> At the time I did it, like I did a couple issues after Burn left, and I was just basically, I was killing time between starting Superman, you know, before yeah. I Superman. So I, 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 I did it for like basically three issues, but it was still in Burn's shadow. I think it would be interesting to do it without that, you know? I mean, so many years after John <clears throat> has been off that book, it would be easier to do it and do your own thing with it. You know, but yeah, uh, but I think the the same is true with Superman. I'd st- even though I wrote it and and drew it, I would love to write and draw some Superman stuff with whatever maturity I have. You know, because yeah. I think when you're when you're doing stuff at a certain time, there's always the context of your whatever your era is. Like when you know when Byrne was big, everybody was influenced by John, or they were influenced by Frank Miller, or or Walt Simonson, or Chaikin, or you know, there's a bunch of people like that. Yeah. And when I was doing Superman, even I was still in his shadow in John's shadow, I think because, you know, he had been really good to me and had allowed me to do plot co-plotting and, 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 you know, we were friendly and all this stuff, but I always felt like when I took over as a writer, I was still feeling like I was still hearing his, his characters. I mean, his, his voice in him in some way, you know, yeah. I, I kind of was getting away from that towards maybe the last year or so when I started just writing it and not drawing it, I was feeling like I was kind of finding a voice, but, uh, I think that's why Shazam winds up being, you know, I look back on it, probably my favorite project to do because it was a case of, you know, even though I was working with Peter Krause and Mike Manley, they were drawing it. It was still something that I felt like I was, I was the shepherd behind that. You know, I was, yeah. I was the flock, you know, yeah. Uh, whereas Superman, you're you're part of you're like one of fifteen cogs in the machine, in the you're you're a gear making the machine work, and you can be the main gear, but you're still it's still a a collective kind of uh, environment where you, you know, you'd come up with an idea, and then you wouldn't necessarily be the guy to draw your own idea or to write your own idea because you would just be sitting there trying to fill in ideas on a big chart so that you know you could build a six months worth of storylines that would make some kind of sense yeah um, well well i think interesting when we're going a little bit about what's the idea of what you're doing with superman obviously it seems like right now in the world of comics there's always a, a debate going on right now with the idea of politics and comic books and whether or not they belong in comics or not and i was looking at things like superman the background especially what um, what you what you did and obviously where his origins were and i can't help but think that politics have always been in comic books i was wondering what your thoughts were on that 
Oh yeah, no. I mean, I again being a Marvel. See, like DC always felt, especially in that era when I was when I was a, a teenager or whatever. DC's always felt a little bit sterile, and I know people love them, and I'm, I'm not saying they're bad, but like the 1960s DCs could have been 1950s DCs, and if you look back at back issues, you could I, I swear to God, you look at like a 1950 Superman and a 1960 Superman, and they're virtually the same. Whereas Marvel definitely felt like it was of its time, you know, and Stan Lee uh, had, I think, had a hip voice, <laughs> you know, for that time. And those Marvel comics were very political without being political. You know what I'm saying? Like they weren't like, they, they reflected a world that was much more realistic than, say, the DC world or more cohesive as a universe or whatever. But they actually tackled issues without being overly political, but they were definitely political issues. I remember, you know, Daredevil uh, and the Falcon and the stories with the, you know, the Vietnam vets and and stuff like that would seep in, even though they were, they basically grounded it in the time. You know, there were protests, Spider-Man, you know, cover with the big protests, people protesting the war and things like that. So it was there. You know, it's just, I think it's selective in a way that maybe now, just because we have the option of being a little more specific, you know, you can be, uh, I mean, people hated Nixon, let me tell you. I mean, if you were under a certain age, nobody loved Nixon. You know, Nixon was maybe somebody your parents' age could, could get behind or whatever, but, you know, it, it was as clear cut as as the Trump stuff is nowadays, you know. That was, the, I mean, that was the key of my my youth was, you know, when I was in kindergarten, I think John Kennedy was assassinated. And then a couple of years later, Martin Luther King and then Robert F. Kennedy. And all that stuff happened in formative years where I maybe couldn't totally grasp what was happening. But I, I honestly remember watching the funeral processions on TV and crying, you know? I mean, because it felt like this is a really bad thing. And I think that kind of informs your your outlook as a as an adult, you know? I mean, at the very least, it, it offers you empathy. I grew up in a poor neighborhood, and my mom had a tavern, and she never made money with it, but it was like a way for her to be kind of home in a way, work at home, not exactly, but she, you know, the tavern, we, we lived in this small <clears throat> bump out at the back of the tavern that was probably no more than, it couldn't have been more than 20 by 20. It had two bedrooms carved out and then a basically a, a longer kind of kitchen and a back door, you know, but we were probably richest people in the neighborhood because my mom had a business. Wow. Most of the other uh, families were pretty poor and, you know, I, I would, I'm sure well, I seem to recall a lot of them being on food stamps or whatever existed back then. I think it was food stamps that just started, but that was where I grew up, you know, and those were my, my people and they were my friends and everything. And yeah, I didn't like living where I lived, but I had the best friends and, you know, it was also like a little bit of a show. I don't know how you put it. It, it, I'm not trying to like a bleeding heart thing because I never was bleeding heart. I just, I always, I always hated, uh, bullies. I hated things that were wrong. I mean, when there's a right and a wrong, you know, I mean, those are things that I just, I don't know why or what was different about me, but I always had this strong sense of you know, following the rules and, and all that. And, and you don't really question some of that until you get older and you start seeing how, 
oh, people get away with stuff, you know? But, but yeah, I mean, I, I, as you're talking, we started this whole thing about the police stuff. And when I was a kid, we had a beat cop. And a beat cop was a single guy walking. He had like maybe eight blocks. And he would yeah. just patrol it. He would they stop it. Well, he would stop it in businesses. They knew who he was. Yep. You know, he'd say, hey, Schmitty, or whatever his name was. We had a Schmitty. <laughs> um, and that was the way things you know, were up until the riots and, and post, you know, 67, 68 is when the police started driving in patrol cars in Milwaukee in our area. And it, it was a crime area. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't, it was rough, you know, but I remember very distinctly in like late sixties through seventies, cops were two, two to a car and they never, ever got out. The most they would do, they, they did the exact same thing that the the other guy did, except they never went into went into any places, and they interacted with people by rolling the window down, and you know that was how they did their policing. And the big difference, and again, I know the world is bigger and and more populated and everything else, but there's nothing to compare to someone who knows the people who live in his area. Yeah, you know, even for better or worse, someone could say that guy's trouble, that guy's okay, but he's got some experience with that as opposed to being like an occupying force. And that's unfortunately the, you know, the idea that if someone says, okay, you're, you're watching these people, you're not part of those people anymore. You know, you're outside of it or you're always in your car and you're looking for something. And again, you know, I don't know what the answer is, but I do know that, you know, the riots didn't touch our neighborhood, maybe because there weren't businesses to, you know, to destroy or whatever, but it was pretty much downtown, you know, but, but yeah, I mean, we, uh, you know, like I said, there, there, there's a different era. We, we had the guy, I sound like an old guy. I know I do. I'm sorry about that, but <laughs> the, uh, the principal at our, at our grade school knew everybody by name, you know, it wasn't like a school with thousands of kids. It was a school with, you know, it was a three, it had three floors. It was grade kindergarten through eighth grade. And, you know, it was not a huge school. It was a neighborhood school. And it basically covered probably about 10 blocks, you know, so everybody walked to school. I just, I mean, there's certain things, not like a rosy kind of thing, like everything was perfect. Right. But I do think we live together in community, you know? I mean, civilization is 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 an impressive thing if you think about it. If you think back, how did people gather together will you gather for strength you share resources you share labor whatever that's how cities start and cities start not everybody probably wanted in on that and there was probably a lot of brutality to get people in line but what keeps them together it's a it's a crazy thing to think about it it really is like a little microcosm you know it's and and if you don't know anybody you're kind of at a disadvantage yeah you know and that's like I said, that's the biggest thing. We, I, I think about that with, with as a kid, there was a mailman. The mailman had a three-wheeled mailbag. It was a heavy, big thing, like a golf cart, basically. Not a cart, like a driving cart, but a like a golf bag, I guess, with three wheels. And he walked that route, you know, and the mail, the post office had to be, I mean, he probably had like maybe uh, two miles of, of walking, a big circle. Yeah. And he did multiple deliveries a day. You know, they had three, probably three mail deliveries. As long as there was mail, they delivered it. Wow. Um, 
and I, I just think again, it's the the idea of having local stores and having, and this did come up obviously with some stores uh, during some of the unfortunate looting. Yeah, is that some businesses that were certainly good parts of of those neighborhoods and and vital parts, they wind up getting destroyed too. Yep. You know, and that doesn't help pops. anybody. Yep. And yeah. they can't recover as easily. Uh, and that's, that's terrible. Yeah, but I, again, I, you know, I feel like you're hitting on something that should be done is that sense of community has been drastically pulling away because yeah. you're doing more of a police style force. Yeah. So you don't have somebody that, you know, you don't have a cop that has a relationship with, with the neighborhood and yeah. what's going on in the neighborhood. And then on top of that, everybody is online so you have this wall in front of communications. You're not yeah. doing the face-to-face or anything like that. And plus, you know, you order everything on Amazon. Right. You know, and you have it delivered to your house. So you're not even going right. out and, and interacting with people like you, right. like you did before. So you're very, you're, very you're, you're, you're basically isolated even within a group, yeah. you know? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a weird time to be alive right now. I mean, I mean, when you have like, I have, I, my kids are all grown up, but when my kids were little, where we, we moved to this town in 2000, like the end of 2000. Yeah. And I think my daughter was in first or second grade or something by that point. So she had to adjust, but, but the two boys were, you know, they, they pretty much came here and learned the school. But what I was going to say is that when you're, when you're, when you have families you do tend to know more people because you have more shared activities. You know, you know people through the school and then you wind up knowing, oh, they're, you know, and, and there's, that's, again, that's part of like the way Connecticut is broken down into towns. We have, you know, we're in Fairfield County, but each of the towns um, are fairly small and they have local government and they have, you know, you go and you speak out or whatever, if you have a problem with something that they're going to try to implement or if someone's trying to put a, you know, a store somewhere or whatever. And that's how, how government's done here. When I was in Wisconsin, it was done differently, but it's still a community, you know? And and if you're in a big city, you're still in a community because big cities are made up of neighborhoods. So, you know, that, that, that's, like I said, I think, who knows if it's a, you know, man, that's why I think sociologists probably have a, a better grip on some of this stuff because, you know, people can move in and out of places. Maybe there's not a lot of long-term, you know, like if someone lives someplace for 20 years, that's a good stretch and you're bound to know things, you know, but if people are constantly moving because of jobs not being stable, you know, I mean, that's an issue. And again, it's stuff that's, it's weird. And you could see the appeal back in 2016 with the, you know, Trump thing with trying to bring work back to the States and all this stuff. But you know, clearly that hasn't happened, Yeah, you know, four years into it or whatever, but there's nothing wrong with that. I, I thought it's not just like, oh, America first. It's the idea that, yeah, we should be making stuff. Yeah. You don't need to make everything, but the fact that we re- rely on almost all of our things come from other places, it's, you have no pride of ownership, Yep. you know, everything's in, imported in, in Connecticut. They used to make, you know, they made watches and they made clocks and they made typewriters and they made things. So towns had, you know, like an old Batman comic, it was typewriter city or something. Yeah. You know, Danbury was hat city. You know, they had nicknames because Danbury made hats, you know, or there was a lot of manufacturing, but there's a pride of, of something. If you're 
an employee or a worker, there's a pride in making something. Yeah. You know, and I think that's the simplest way of putting things is that, you know, you want to find what's your place in your bigger community. Do you, what do you, what do you contribute? You know, well, I make cars or I make, I mean, there's some, pride in that, yeah. you know, and there's pride in those, in those, those used to be careers. So I think, you know, that really, that part of it kind of is sadly lacking. I don't know if there's an answer to that, but I mean, more but, autonomy or more automation gets more and more those kind of things oh, are yeah. going to start slipping even more away. It's kind of, oh, weird. Yeah. it's kind of weird. I, I mean, and what, but what's the, I used to think about this, like this happened in Milwaukee as again, being, I still have a soft spot for Milwaukee because I grew up there and I lived there a long time. Milwaukee transitioned from being a, a maker of things as industry started going towards the South. They lost a lot of, I mean, they used to make engines. They used to make Briggs and Stratton. They made, you know, they made stuff. And as they lost that, the mayor was really smart and he turned it into a touristy thing like old world charm created summer fest. Yeah. Um, and he created like a destination thing and, and tried to play it as a tourist thing. And that's good. The problem is, you know, I mean, it worked there in Connecticut. We have Bridgeport is like a neighboring town. Bridgeport was a huge, huge, you know, thriving place. And as all that industry went away, it just became like a lost cause. Yeah. You know, nothing, there's nothing to come in and, and, you know, take that, take the place. And it's a, it's it's sad, and I, I look at that. That's why I always look at because I've been here for probably longer than I bit was in uh, Milwaukee. In uh, Milwaukee, yeah, and and I've seen nothing really change, you know, <laughs> over thirty some years. There's really been no, no, yeah, no drastic changes at all. No, yeah, and and all that's happened really is in the even from since the nineties, is more people are working in service jobs. You know, Dude, Seattle the, is the exact opposite. Everything has changed. And, and you guys, you got manufacturing, don't you? With uh, well, we have Boeing. Stuff. We have so Boeing, you? and so there was a lot of manufacturing. But the fact, the rise of Microsoft and the rise yeah. of Amazon and yeah. Google coming in, and it just—it's there's been a lot. Those of Those are good office type jobs, right? Yeah, Those are all. A, yeah, there's been a lot of good with that because it's yeah. brought in a ton of money. Yeah. Um, which has raised the education level. It has raised, you know. You come to the east side to like Bellevue and stuff. It's super clean. There's a lot of business going on. I mean, there's it's just there's good and bad to it. But unfortunately, I'm you know I was a teenager. You know, I turned 21 in 1995, mm-hmm. and so my teenage years is the late 80s to the to the early 90s. Seattle is very artistic. A lot of yeah. music was coming out then. You had a lot of you go to the Capitol Hill district. And it was all artists and, you know, and no one had any money, but you could go and live in Capitol Hill, which is on the, which was just North of of downtown. It was just right there. You could literally walk to downtown Seattle from Capitol Hill if you wanted to. And when you got there, you felt a sense of community. You felt like you belong there. There was people, you know what I mean? That the age group was all around the same. Right. Then all of a sudden, Microsoft and all these guys started coming up, and everybody wanted to live. Then they wanted right. to be in the hip part, which is where all the artists are. Right. And all of a sudden, you know, for lack of a better term, gentrification started yeah. happening, and a four hundred dollars studio from nineteen ninety four now goes for four grand. 
Right. You know, right. and it's just like, what is going right. so on? It, there's no way to stay in those places. Even if you wanted to, nope. you're, you're basically forced yeah, out. As, it's changed the whole heart and soul of the city and the way it looks. And it's, yeah. it's drastically changed. Now there's tons of skyscrapers being built. It's, it's, well, you also, what you also get though, with the, with the really big corporations, you get kind of an outsized control over local government because they become so big that they have, you know, more say in what happens. Yep. And they can, they can push for things that, uh, benefit pretty much them. <laughs> you know, again, it's, it's an interesting thing because you don't really know what the solution is. I, I just, I feel like, as you mentioned too, is more, more and more jobs are being done through automation. And if you, even like an assembly line for cars, well, yeah, it's, we want stuff cheap and that's, that's the problem. But it's also, it also is like a self-made problem because, yeah. You know, once you flatten inflation out, like they've done specifically, I mean, that's that's been like a big, uh, it's almost like a wave of economists, you know, coming up with this way to keep inflation down. Well, it kind of throws everything else off because, yeah, maybe you can buy a TV for $100 that would have cost 2000 bucks 15 years ago. Yeah. But your taxes haven't gone down and your healthcare has gone, all this stuff has skyrocketed. Yep. Those are like the housing market uh, too. Yeah. And, and you're paying more rent, you're, you're paying more tax, you're paying more for your food, you're paying. Yep. So it's like you've depressed one area for whatever purpose. So you don't have runaway inflation, but I feel in like a way, you also then depress the, the wages because of that, because yep. it gives almost like a justification. Well, inflation's at low. So, all these other indexes that would maybe cause them to raise, you know, minimum wage or, or, you know, social security benefits, those all get flattened out because of that yet other costs go rising. So, I mean, yeah. here's a, this is, this will sound, I don't know what, if you guys have to buy your own health insurance or if you work. For uh, my, uh, so I have to pay into my health insurance and yeah. it's a ridiculous amount. I, you know, I'm embarrassed to say how much it is. Well, I, you know. when I started freelancing, this is a big thing is that this is why it was good that I worked in commercial art, even though I was working in a studio, I had access to people who I could talk to when I went full-time with comics. They said, okay, you got to remember to save 25% of your income, put it in a different account if you have to, but you're going to have to pay your taxes with that because you're paying them on your own. You're going to have self-employment tax. You need to get insurance. So find an insurance policy. You need, I mean, it was like, it was good to know all that. But when I first went freelance, I was able to buy, I think my insurance, just a basic healthcare plan, catastrophe insurance or whatever. I think it cost me $30 at the most $30 a month. And that was like 1980, you know, yeah, it could have even been cheaper as, as I recall. But now I'm in a situation where I have to buy or I have to, you know, I have to get insurance. I was just looking, you know, how much, it, because I, I'm not destitute. Right. The rate is like a thousand bucks for the worst insurance <laughs> I could choose. Yeah. So, and I'm like, like you know, this is, this is tough because I can't, you know, ugh, my, my wife, she had, uh, for most of the time I was always the guy buying, I had coverage for the whole family. And then, you know, the last maybe 10 years, she's had a job that had me covered under that and I don't use it because I I'm so worried about it. I just try to stay healthy and everything, but I'm not somebody who's using this stuff. But at the same time, her company in the 
since the shutdowns and stuff, her company is now taking this great opportunity to eliminate spouses and children from the healthcare plan unless oh she pays God. she has to pay an extra amount to get that and yeah like 500 bucks extra a month so i started investigating how much it would be just for me and i was like holy crap yeah. really bad like you know i think it was like a $9000 deductible it was uh, like a $980 a month it's crazy and i was like it's nuts yeah. it, and again uh, that's the stuff that people deal with. And, you know, those are, to me, those are social issues that are important and nobody really has addressed them. You know what I'm saying? It's like the, the fact that the Obamacare, uh, the affordable health thing, I was resistant at first, but I've seen how it's helped people, Yeah, you know, and it, it works off the same plan. Basically you're trying to insure a bunch of people so that the high risk ones, it flattens it out a little bit. So it's not, you know, like, oh, you've got a pre-existing condition, your premium is going to be this, which you can't afford, and then therefore you'll, you know, go bankrupt because you have to go to the hospital. Right. So those are things that, that that's, if anybody wants to talk about making America great again, those are, the issues. Those are key issues. Yeah. Having health care that wouldn't bankrupt you if you had to have, actually had to have to use it. You know what I mean? All those are, those are quality of life issues. You know, having pride of a job. Yep. Quality you know, of life should I mean, not be a choice. You know what I mean? It should just yeah. be, it should be a right. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I really, as I've gotten older, I'm, I've certainly come around to the idea that, yeah, okay. If, if it was a one, a pay, you know, like a single payer kind of system or whatever, even if it was managed through the insurance companies, which is kind of what the affordable healthcare act was about. The problem with that is that they gutted it to get it passed. Yeah. You know, they had to give up, some key things just to get it through the Congress and, and to get it approved. But they've had several years now that they could have been fine tuning it and improving it. And instead they've spent the last, you know, several years trying to kill it, which is without another plan. Hey, that's not a good idea. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's not, yeah. not a good idea. Well, but, uh, Jerry, we've been on for over two hours. Can you believe it? Oh, Oops. <laughs> <laughs> no oops. That's awesome. I mean, yeah, I just, it's kind of funny. I mean, we're very much like-minded, so it's easy to get lost when we're chatting away like yeah, this. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, I was surprised. I, I didn't necessarily think we were going in the political direction. I don't yeah. have a problem with it. I had no, somebody I actually this, this week on, I'm on Twitter a lot. I yeah. kind of don't go on Facebook very much, but <clears throat> on Twitter, everybody gets mad at everybody and you know, it's, it, it's, it's pretty funny. I mean, if you could take it for what it is, but it's been really hard to, to just not say stuff or not yeah. retweet things. And I had somebody ask me yesterday, I think it was, they said, you know, well, I agree with you on what you've been posting and stuff. Do you have any worries that this would help, would hurt your, hurt you in your job options? And I, you know, that's always been an issue. They could, you, you know, I get too political. You don't want to polarize. Right. But at the same time, I mean, and I, I tell everybody I'm 62 and I have them getting regular work from Marvel or DC for at least that's 2012. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So yeah. what am I, what am What's I going to change? <laughs> what am I going to jeopardize? I, I mean, how can you keep quiet about stuff? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, and, and again, I think by, by, by someone like me, who's maybe, you know, maybe people read too much into, into stuff, but 
I mean, I be- you can't be a comic fan without believing in the concept of good over evil, yep. of, you know, all these basic things. You don't like comics. Who in comics wants like a bully? Nobody. You know exactly. What I mean? Then your your loyalties are are skewed somehow. Comics of the stuff that appealed to me as a kid was all stuff that was, you know, Spider Man. He was the greatest example. He actually sacrificed his reputation. People, the cops hated him. The newspaper, you know, hated him. But he did the right thing anyway. Yep. You know, and and that's what it's about. That's what a hero is about. It's not that doing what it's expected of you. It's, you know, in the kind of bad situation of doing the right thing, no matter what it costs you, <laughs> that's what it's about. Yeah. So, I mean, how can you, I don't know, how can you not see that? I, I, I was just doing a redo for a commission for somebody of the Superman saluting with the flag waving behind him kind of from Superman. I think it was issue 53 or something. It was right. It, it came out just the week, I think of the first Gulf war when the first Gulf War broke out. Yeah. And it was perfectly, perfectly timed, but people forget that the story inside that I wrote was all about questioning authority. <laughs> about like, <laughs> you know, being, uh, you know, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it was, it, it, that's, that's the best stuff to me is, is again, you know, the idea that someone does the right thing, no matter the cost. It's yeah. like, that's a hero, you know, not it, for your personal gain, not for, you know, that's to me. That's the whole Marvel universe in a nutshell. Is is really wrapped up in the you know with great power comes great responsibility. That whole thing that you know Spider Man's origin is yeah. just the the most perfect, I guess, example of that. You know, being selfish. Oh, let somebody else take care of this. Bad thing happens. No, you really gotta. You can't turn a blind eye. You know. Yeah, so, I like it. But, I think uh, that's anyway. a perfect spot, Jerry. Thank you so much for coming <laughs> on. Uh, no problem. We are back. Hey, apologies to Jeff as well because Jeff Haas was big on Haas. the get. Big Haas was on with me, and he might have been a casualty of war of my memory card going full and me neglecting to hit record on Skype. But now I can blame Jeff for not hitting record on Skype. <laughs> yeah, it's all Jeff's fault. Jeff should. Jeff, you should know better. And he's he's on. He's there. He asked his questions. It was just, it was just the conversation was very Kenrick and Jerry written because uh, yeah, you, you you both like to hear yourself talk. Hey, it's not a bad a back, thing. That's a backhanded compliment. Uh, well, I, <laughs> yes, but it's still a compliment of some I'm kind. I'm not saying you're not false. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> but you know no, what is it, fun about this, Kenrick? Uh, it, well, one, it, it's I mean, his stories with about Crisis and working on on Superman are, are amazing, right? Right. And working on uh, you know the power of Shazam and all the stuff that he he, he did is just you know he's working with John Byrne, uh, great stuff. But we do actually have, you actually did record the first 30 minutes of your conversation yeah. with him. That was nothing to do with any of his comic book stuff that we have before it were cut out. And it's kind of funny because we're going to, we're going to release that um, in a couple of days for everybody yeah. to listen to. Cool. So there is a little bit more of Jerry, Jerry Ordway out there, but uh, it's, 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 it makes me laugh and I'll, I'll talk about this on that one too, but that first one literally ends you going, all right, let's start the show. And it stops. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. Well, yeah. if you guys 
enjoyed hearing that, and I hope you did. Go to spoilerverse.com. You can check out all our back issues. Everything's free. And there's a ton of other podcasts like Bridging the Geekdom and Polygon Warriors and Misery Point Radio and uh, Funny Book Forensics. And they're all right there for you to enjoy. Yeah, and it's funny. We've been talking, we've been talking about Funny Book Forensics for a long time, and they actually officially launched on August 5th. Nice. On my birthday. On your birthday. It's, it's, it's a birthday gift for you. That's right. That's right. See, Greg was looking out for me. Yeah, Greg and yeah, Dan looking out. Yeah, yeah. And on the website, Spoilers.com, we have articles and reviews and previews and so much fun stuff you can go there and read. And, I mean, just check it out. We have a store link. You can go and get a T-shirt or a hoodie or a face mask because we know you're smart enough to wear a face mask out in public because you want you care about people and you're not one of those people who think it's all fake news. You, you care. If you listen to this show, you obviously care. And uh, you do all that. We get a few bucks. We look fly as hell, and we help pay the, pay the bills here to keep lights on. Yep. There you guys go. All right, Johnny, I think we're done. Yeah, that's a show, man. That is a show. And so, you know, there's only one last thing to do. One thing. In oceans of podcasts, we are Cthulhu. And as Cthulhu compels you to do, we'll open the mind and we